Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Good morning. Oh, I want to encourage you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2. Can you believe it? We are in the second chapter of Leviticus. Yeah, I love that enthusiasm. Vayikra, the book of Vayikra. Everybody with me on the count of three, say Vayikra. One, two, three. Vayikra. So it's the book of Vayikra, chapter 2. And as you're finding your way to chapter 2, I welcome those who are worshiping in our Family Life Center, as well as those who are tuning in online uh, to the extended uh, Johns Creek Baptist family worshiping us or worshiping with us from far away. Uh, and we encourage you to turn with us as well. Here's where we've been. We're in this book where, contrary to all expectations, we've opened up a book that perhaps may be the most relevant of all. This old book filled with rituals and details about sacrifices and offerings written so long ago to an ancient people with primitive practices. And yet, when we look just beneath the surface, we recognize, as with all icebergs, that the mass, the greater mass, is below the surface. And we have been in now uh, three weeks in the study of Vayikra. And I want to encourage you to remember everything we read in Leviticus. It has a meaning, but for us to recognize the relevance of its meaning for our everyday normal life, it requires we do some excavation, that we drill down a little deeper beyond the perceived surface value of anything that's said. That, that goes throughout this book. It's never just about what it says. It's about what it means and what it does when we hear it in the hearing of worshipers like you and me. So we have already said that in the first seven chapters of the book, there are five offerings that are described. These are people who are ex-slaves. And in their newfound liberation, having just been freed from, from Egyptian tyranny, they now have a life that is absolutely freed, but it's not structured, it's not ordered and any of us, when we have gone through the thing, when we've gone through the ordeal, even when it's better and we're freer and we are healthier because of it, we still need some help in reordering life after the thing, in restructuring the world. And this is what the first several chapters are about. And strangely enough, they describe offerings that are being taken in the tabernacle. There's the description of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And all five of these offerings, three of which are voluntary, not even required, two of which are required, they all attempt to help this newly freed people find a way to structure life in such a way that they live peaceably with God and peaceably with their neighbors. 
Today, our focus is on the second offering, a voluntary offering called the grain offering. Turn with me now to chapter 2 of Leviticus and hear these words. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it. Do you say oil or oil? Is it three syllables or one? Oil. I always say oil. So bring olive oil on it. Put incense on it. In some translations it says frankincense. Yours may say that. And take it to Aaron's. Is it Aaron or Aaron? Or Aaron? Is it Aaron? Okay. Take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. The, the priest shall take a handful of the flour and oil together with all the incense and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons, and it is a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. So, so if, if you bring a grain offering baked in an oven... It's to consist of the finest flour, either thick loaves made without yeast or, or and the olive oil mixed in with thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with olive oil. If your grain offering is prepared on the griddle, it's to be made of the finest flour mixed with oil and, and without yeast. Crumble it, pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. Your grain offering is cooked in a pan. If it's, if it's cooked in a pan... It's to be made of the finest flour, some olive oil, bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord, present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as a food offering, uh, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Every grain offering that you bring Uh, The Lord must be made without yeast. Hmm. For you are not to burn any yeast or honey on on the food or in the food presented to the Lord. Uh, You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all of your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of the grain offerings. Salt all that you have, salt all the offerings. But, but if you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with the incense as a food offering presented to the Lord. This is the reading of the Holy Word. Transformative. Life-giving, liberating to those upon whose ears it falls. And I am here to make the argument that that is actually true. The reading of the sacred word. It is reliable. And it can be trusted. Today I want to talk to you a little bit about how in the world, talking about Rice Krispies and mini wheats and, and in granola can speak anything to the pain of my life, anything at all to the dilemma that I face in my relationships or the crisis that is brewing, the storm that I see rising in my family. How in the world does this ancient text have anything to do at all with helping me navigate and order my life? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
today. I want to talk about that. But to get there, I want us to give some anchor words for you to hold on to. Today, we are going to have to talk a little bit about Baptist casseroles, secret ingredients, and going organic. Baptist casseroles, somebody say amen. Secret ingredients and going organic. Would you pray with me? And now, oh God, with our minds and our hearts fixed upon you, we confess to you that we believe in the impossible. Reading ancient texts that seem to have nothing to do with my life may actually transform all of us if your spirit is in it. We welcome your spirit in this moment because we recognize that we have come from a variety of scattered places. Our minds are in a hundred different places even now as we pray and our expectations and our priorities and our actions that must be taken after worship, they're already scattered and we are praying that your spirit would order us. Fix us in such a way that we see and hear something from you that transforms something in us. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. Baptist casseroles. Now, you know the old joke, right? The teacher says to, to her third grade class, I want you to bring something that symbolizes your religion. So one student said, I'm Jewish, and I brought a star of David. Another little girl said, I'm Catholic, and I brought a rosary. And, and then the little boy said, well, I'm Baptist, and I brought a casserole. And you know why this is true. We are good at making stuff. We are good at cooking stuff. Baptist casseroles, I think it may be the third ordinance of the church. You got the Lord's Supper, you got, you got baptism, and you got uh, casseroles. And you know why it happens, too, when someone is sick, when someone struggles. and You don't know what to do. You know how to cook. This past couple of weeks, Laura was recovering a little bit, and some of you brought some food to the house. Oh, my goodness, you... You brought chicken tortilla soup, you brought turkey, chili, you, you brought Brunswick stew, and oh, it was so good. I almost wanted Laura to go back in the hospital for a little bit so the food wouldn't stop. Can I get an amen? I mean, not on her going back to the hospital, of course, but because this is what we do, beloved. And, and why do we do it? Why, why do we do it? When we are sick, one of the answers is it's practical. There's a practicality to it. When someone's sick or recovering or grieving or going through a thing, we, we bring them food so it's one less thing they have to think about, right? There is a practical level. Don't think about this. Here's some food. We want you to not have to worry about that, and we, we, want, we want you to eat well. But there is another reason why. You know this. It's not just for practicality. It's not just so they don't have to cook. It's because of love it's because of love that's what it is 
It's saying, look, I can't fix you. I can't make you better. I can't give back to you the thing that you, that you lost. But here's what I can do. I can express my love in a tangible way that, that comes with a pleasing aroma to the smell. And so we cook and we bring food and soups and dishes in order to love. And I think about that a little bit when I think about the second chapter of Leviticus. Because on the surface, it sounds as if it would look or appear as if what the people are attempting to do is to bring God food for practical reasons. Well, God's got to eat. (laughs) It would seem on the surface that they were cooking in order to do what all their neighbors were doing to somehow uh, give God something that God needed. See, in the ancient mind, it's true. The neighbors of Israel... Well, when they would have a harvest or a crop, they assumed in the primitive mind, well, it's because the gods brought the water and the gods brought the the sun and and the heat and and grew. I was able to grow my harvest, so I better give a portion of my harvest back to the gods to appease them so as to kind of compel them to, to not to not anger them, to somehow placate the gods so that they will do it again and keep sending rain and and, and keep on uh, allowing me to grow my harvest. So the neighbors of Israel would bring food out of the belief that the gods actually had to be fed and you needed to appease the gods so the gods would not be angry and, and come after you. On the surface, it looks like that's what's going on or a remnant of that. But the truth of the matter What's going on is actually the exact opposite of that. For the first time, here is a God who is demonstrating, I don't need your food. Don't forget, this offering is one of the three voluntary offerings. It's it's called minha. The word is minha. It's It's a grain offering. It's one of the ones that's voluntary that nobody is called to give. They're not commanded to give this. So why would they give the minha? God doesn't need food in fact later in psalm 50 we read about it god puts it this way god says look i have no need of bull from your of a bull from your stall or or of goats from your pens for every animal of the forest is mine and and the cattle on a thousand hills i know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields they're, they're mine if i were hungry i wouldn't tell you for the world is mine and, and all that is in it. So if this God didn't need to eat, and if this God didn't need to be appeased, why would they bring the minha? It was expressly for one purpose only, to demonstrate their gratitude and their love, their joy, their contentment, because they had been rescued And now they're giving a portion of what is sustaining them as a way to say, you are worthy and we thank you and we express our joy. So God gives them instructions on how to do it. With this God, it's interesting because as non-primitive as you and I think we are, we do the same things. We at times, if we don't check ourselves, we will wreck ourselves. The truth is we will think to ourselves, You know, maybe in order to fix the thing that happened, in order to repair the wrong that I did, maybe God will go a little bit easier on me if if I do something nice for somebody. Maybe if I make a contribution to this 
this charity, or, or maybe if I say some nice things to this person, or maybe if I go to church uh, more often than I have been going, then somehow God will see that and, and will respond by saying, okay, well then I've been appeased. I'll not crush you this week. And we don't say it that way, but that's how we behave. We act like God is a big Coke machine, and, 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 and we, the more money we put in, the more time, the more good deeds we put in, somehow there's just enough change to inspire God to produce once we make our selection. And that, from the ancient of days until now, has never been true about this God. This God is the one who says, look, I am not going anywhere. I've moved in. I've made my home. I have tabernacled with you. I am here in your camp. And nothing you do or say will change my level of love for you. But if you want to express your gratitude and your love, if you want to connect with me, well then, Vayikra, come and connect with me. But you don't have to sing and dance. You don't have to placate. I don't need your food. I need your heart. And in the most beautiful expression, he gives detail after detail after detail about how to give a grain offering of all things. Why? Because if this is how they can give their life in, in, in gratitude and worship before him, he says, well, okay, then here's what we're going to do. You can come near. You can worship me, not because it keeps my anger at bay, but because I want you near. But if you come near, here are specific ways I want you to give your worship to me. Because in the detail of these specific ways, there is a message that I want you to understand. So he not only gives them permission to vaikra, come near. He not only gives them permission to bake a gratitude casserole, but he gives them the recipe for it. Which leads us to our second movement, secret ingredients. Secret ingredients. Leviticus 2 verse 1 begins this way. Okay, well, when anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, their offering is to be made of the finest flour. They are to pour olive oil on it and put incense or frankincense on it and take it to Aaron's sons, the priest. Right here in the first two verses, we're given the secret ingredients to proper worship in the eyes of God. When life has fallen apart and somehow we've been rescued and we want to express gratitude and we want to live in such a way that we are connected with this one who has said, you can connect with me, come on, come, Vayikra, then there is a particular way to do it. It includes three ingredients to the ancients. It includes the finest flour, olive oil, and frankincense. Do you know that the finest flour, that's an odd phrase because in the Hebrew, the finest flour is distinguished from every other kind of flour because the finest flour, usually in that era, the, the flour was gritty and hard and granular. It was, it was rough, but to get Fine flour, and even more so, finest flour, required extraordinary amounts of work, grinding, and crushing, and pressing, 
until it's finer and finer and finer until it gets down to a certain film that is powdery and it's the finest and most expensive of all flowers after all of the work of grinding and crushing and pressing. But after you've gotten the finest flower, pour some olive oil on it. Do you know how you get olive oil? I mean, I talked about it in a series a couple years ago called Gethsemane, where we're talking about that anguished night of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we, he was near the Mount of Olives, that place known for the production of olive oil. And we talked at great length during that time about the production of olive oil. Do you know it requires crushing usually under a great millstone and in the ancient days with a beast of burden as it constantly grinds and crushes and presses and squeezes out to the very last secretion of the tannins from the skin until you have olive oil. If you want to come near Vayikra and express your love for me, I don't need your food, but if you want to express your love, it must include the finest flower. It must include olive oil and one more. You must include frankincense. Do you know what I learned about frankincense this week? Frankincense is a beautiful smell. It's a delightful aroma to the nose. But you can't smell the sweetness of frankincense until it's cracked, until it's crushed, until it's ground up and pressed in in such a way that it releases the sweetness of the frankincense. And I just want us to sit for a moment in this worshipful space to consider when God said, all right, I want you to come near, and I don't need your food, but if you're going to do it, I want you to be deliberate in how you bring an offering to me. Here's what I want you to bring. There is no more appropriate worship that you could bring me than to bring me the broken stuff. For worship to be true worship, authentic worship, you got to bring stuff that's been cracked and broken and pressed down and crushed. And listening to the ears of the ancients, they know exactly why he is commanding them as such because they've just come through a season of being crushed under the dominant hand of Pharaoh and the oppression of the empire in Egypt. They know what it means to be crushed. But my beloved sisters and brothers, so do you. You know what it means to have been pressed by a thing, a season, an unexpected turn, a failure, a fall. And that squeezing and that pressing and that grinding that you think may be the thing that keeps you from the Holy One, I am here to tell you is the very thing that qualifies you to come before the Holy One. Somebody say amen. I'm telling you there is no way to get to God without being vulnerable and transparent and honest about the places where we are not perfect. love the truth of this passage in, in Leviticus. <laughs> By the way, there's one more thing I want you to know about this. It says, if you prepare it, I want you to know that there is a portion I want you to put on the altar. There's a word that's used for that portion. The word in Hebrew here is azkara. Azkara, my rabbi friend Jordan is watching right now and he's going to correct me on Wednesday. I guarantee it. 
Azkara. And Azkara means a portion that you put on the altar, right? That's, that's, that's what that means. We don't really know exactly what it literally means, but here's what we do know. The verbal root of that word is zakar, which means remember. Can I connect a dot or two for us? God is saying, yes, you can worship me. Yes, Vayikra, come near. But as you come near, there's really one and only one appropriate way to worship me, and that is to bring your brokenness and all vulnerability to places where you've been crushed. And zakar, place it on the offering as you remember the places where you have been crushed. And as you place the memory of the places where you've been crushed on the altar, then I will pull back together the places where your life has splintered. Isn't that amazing? And there's one more thing I want you to know about this. The text goes further. It goes further by, by describing if you make a grain offering, you might have a variety of ways to cook it. Did you notice that earlier? The text said, hey, if you, if you cook this grain offering in, a, in an oven, well, then here are the instructions. But if you make it on a griddle, here's some instructions. Uh, and if you make it in a pan, here are some instructions. And all these instructions are very similar, but there's three different utensils used. What's interesting about the oven is that an oven was used as it was buried halfway or even all the way into the ground outside of a permanent house. That's the oven that we're talking about. Buried inside the ground outside of your permanent residence. A griddle and a pan, well, those are portable. You can take those in and out of the house. You can, you can really take them anywhere you go. But what's interesting is these, these people didn't have permanent residence. I mean, they were still on the way from... Egypt to promised land. Having an oven may have been an impossible thing to imagine in the condition of a permanent residence, which means that the text is written not only to those who are transient, but to those in the future who one day will have permanent residence and can cook in ovens. And the message to you and to me is sometimes, I, I, I guarantee this is true about somebody on campus today. Somebody here is waiting until life settles in some kind of promised land before you commit to Christ, before you yield your heart, before you join the church, before you start giving, before you say yes to a call or a ministry. You're waiting, well, let's just wait until the thing settles down with the kids. And maybe let's wait until the finances settle down before we give. And maybe we just wait until things settle down before we actually get involved at Johns Creek. And I'm telling you that wherever you are in the spectrum of being completely unsettled to being totally settled or somewhere in between, the message to you from God is Vaikra. You don't have to wait for life to settle to bring your brokenness to God. I love what Mary Sarton says about it. She says, or I'm sorry, uh, Catherine of Aragon. Mary Sarton's been on my mind this week. None get to God but through trouble. Will you let that hang there for just a moment? None get to God but through trouble. <laughs> and it may be that you think, and are you in trouble? I mean, have you, do you have trouble in your heart, in your life, in your family? It may be that you think that the very trouble that has paralyzed you is the thing that is keeping you away from God, but I'm telling you that it's trouble that, according to Leviticus, becomes the pathway to God. 
Because God meets us in our trouble and rescues us from there. There's nothing you can do to keep God's rescue from you. And earlier this week, Tom Cantwell. You remember Tom? Tom was a JCBC member for a long time, moved to Kentucky. He had an amazing post on Facebook that I want to share with you that I thought about in this preparation. He said, if you think, it's a quote, it's actually a quote from, um, uh, so I want Janet, let me hang on, I want to get her credit right here. It's a quote from uh, somebody really smart. Doesn't matter, I'll post it later. If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. You, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. If you think you've blown God's plan for your life, rest in this. You, my beautiful friend, are not that powerful. There is nothing that can keep God's rescue from you because of the character of God. There is a song that we sing in our contemporary service from time to time called Reckless Love. Listen to these words. There's no shadow you won't light up. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no wall you won't, I love this, you won't kick down. There's no lie that you won't tear down coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down, fights till I'm found, and leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it still. You give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. The message from Leviticus 2 is this. You don't have to wait until life settles down and your life is cleaned up before you bring your brokenness to God. God is a rescuing God and the best, sweetest aroma of worship that could rise before God's own nostrils is the aroma of our memory of brokenness that we hand over to God that God may do something with. Which leads us to our last movement in the sermon today, going organic. So a wife called her husband and said, Hey, on your way home, I'd like for you to pick up some organic vegetables at the grocery store. We're going to eat tonight, and I want some organic vegetables. We need to get healthier. We want to eat more cleanly. So stop and get some organic vegetables. He goes to the grocery store. He looks around all that he can, and he can't find any organic. He sees vegetables, but he can't find any organic vegetables. So he asks this kid who's working there and says, look, where are the organic ve vegetables? I can't seem to find them. The kid didn't know at all what he was talking about. And he said, look, this is really important. Um, this is for my wife. So are, are these vegetables sprayed with poisonous chemicals? And the kid said, no, you'll have to do that yourself. <laughs> Going organic means to live and eat in a way that is unfettered. It's, it's un, there's no additive to it. And, and, and we go to the passage here where at the end of this text, there is a curious Restriction in the recipe that's given. Yeah, include finest flour. Yeah, include olive oil. Include frankincense. Prepare it this way and this kind of utensil. But at the end it says, but don't include two things. The text here says, every grain offering that you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey in a food offering presented to the Lord. And I'm like, why? 
What's wrong with yeast? What's wrong with honey? There are theories as to why in Leviticus 2 God issues a prohibition against those two items. And one theory is that well, yeast, it ferments, and fermentation is equated with death, the death of something, and this is a life passage, and that's, that's a theory. Another theory is because some of the neighbors of Israel used to use uh, yeast and, and honey in their offerings of their gods, and so God is like, I'm not the other gods, you're not other people, your worship needs to be unique, distinct, we're going to do it differently, and that's, that's a fine theory too. But I subscribe to the third, which, which is this, yeast and honey symbolize control. If I add yeast to something, I make it rise. If I drizzle honey over something, I make it sweeter. And I'm compelled by the, the awareness that you and I, along with our ancient sisters and brothers, are often attempting to lift up our lives, to raise it up higher than it really is, and drizzle the honey of perception and persona over our lives so that we impress each other. We try to yeast up our lives and honey up our lives so that we look sweeter, we look more delectable and presentable. And what God is saying is that may work with these other gods out here, but I am a God who wants to see you and know you in the raw, organically. You don't need to add another thing to your life. You can't raise up through the, the, the yeast of your own intention, your own life, I am in the raising up business. I'm the one who raises things from the dead, not you. And you cannot pour any honey sweet enough for me to love you any more than I already do. Come to me unfettered. Come to me unadorned. Come to me organically. And in your brokenness and vulnerability, I can do with you what you cannot do on your own. Somebody say amen. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Leviticus. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Most glorious God of all the ages and of all of us gathered here in this place, our prayer is that you would show us the truth of this passage. Uh, give us the ears that we may hear your call to Vayikra to come near you, but, but unrestrained, un unprojected, unadorned. Show us how to have the courage to become vulnerable before you and bring to you our brokenness that you may bring things together. Even today, work in somebody's heart during the singing of the song. Move in us, Lord. For we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.